0: The following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. To the Mythgard Academy, this is session number two on Out of the Silent Planet. and We're hoping actually to get to Malakandra today, so that would be a good thing. I'm going to try to move along more efficiently than I did last time, which is kind of a resolution I've made a lot over the course of my career. Anyway, off we go. Okay, no, not off we go. First, two quick announcements. Uh, We have three. Three quick announcements. Um, we have two moots upcoming. Our regional moot season, our our, our spring season is beginning here soon. Uh, we have two moots coming up in the month of February. On February 8th, we have Moot down in Houston, Texas. Uh, and our own Trish Lambert is going to be the, uh, uh, the keynote speaker there. So I hope you'll be able to join us there if you're anywhere in the Texas area. Um, and um, uh, again, that's Saturday, February 8th. And then on the 22nd, of February, two weeks later, we have SoCal moot, uh, out, uh, in Los Angeles. In fact, uh, it's going to be, um, Uh, It's going to be in Hollywood. Actually, we are going to we're holding Socal Moot at the Netflix headquarters this year, uh, which is kind of kind of awesome. Uh, So that's what we're doing on the twenty second of February out in Hollywood. Uh, You can find more information on both of these moots on the signumuniversity.org dot org homepage. Um, uh, Just scroll down a little bit. So uh, yeah. Oh Jocelyn, yeah, it's a good reason you don't know about that yet because we're we were only just announcing this finally we were uh we were having some uh Wanting to make, I've I've been wanting to announce that for a while, but we needed to confirm it. So we finally received confirmation, and so can confirm it. The registration isn't open for uh, uh, for SoCalMoot yet. Um, That'll be coming out soon. But so I just wanted to mention it on a in a save the date kind of way. Uh, And the call for uh, papers and presentations is open there. So if you want to uh, uh, to to give a presentation or think about participating in a discussion, um, you should uh, you should definitely look into that information is on the page there. So, um, anyway. Uh, and the third uh, really quick one is that we're... This is Wednesday. We're in the middle of our first f- our first week of the spring semester in our MA program. Uh, uh, our Signum MA program. Uh, it's not too late to join some of our classes, especially if you wanted to join in as an auditor. You can even join in to take the courses for credit still for the first two weeks. But obviously, sooner is better than later when it comes to joining the classes. You're missing stuff already. So, um Uh, But definitely happy to have folks, especially people who want to audit, especially if you wanted to audit the new live course that we're offering this term, uh, which is our uh, Classical Myths and Legends class. So anyway, um, there, uh, there we are. There we are. Um, oh, <laughs> too old not to. The SoCal moot page isn't up yet. Okay, sorry, I I, I, I overstepped there. Um, I, save the date. Again, save the date. The page will be up soon. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, again, the 22nd of February. Uh, and I got, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here uh, in my excitement about the confirmation. Uh, so more information will be available soon. Uh, but do keep that in mind. And you can begin thinking through your proposal, uh, for a presentation for that. So there we go. Thank you to old not to, uh, on the the Twitch chat there for, uh, uh, pointing that out. Okay. All right. Now let us get back to the text. So we had just blasted off. We were standing out from earth at uh, 85,000 miles, uh, and ransom was coping with this fact for the first time. Um, and this begins the, uh, the, the, really kind of the meat of the entire uh, book, really. Um, Lewis is quite unapologetic about the fact that, for him, one of the things that he really loves about science fiction as a genre is the way that it enables us to—I mean, it is— for him very like fantasy. The two of them are very similar. They're not exactly the same, but they're very similar. And the, t- the things that they have in common, the fundamental things that fantasy and science fiction have in common is the the what if games that you can play, right? The, the way in which one's imagination is not totally free to like go in totally different ways. So like, for instance, he's not imagining that on Malacandra... Gravity doesn't work, or gravity works the opposite way, or something like that. Right? Um, there are, um, you know, sort of rules. He's still operating generally within the rules of our solar system, at least the rules of our solar system as they were understood and as he was imagining them. But there's still a lot of, um, there's still a lot of uh, of scope for imagination, uh, and just both in the terms of. Imagining what something would be like, what it would be like to be out in space, or like a what if it were like this to be out in space, right? Um, And then, given a certain set of parameters, what might life be like? What might uh, uh, civilization be like on another planet, right? Those are the kinds of imaginative games that Lewis is going to be playing, and that's where he's really interested. That's what he's really interested in. A lot of people, of course, dislike the spaceship, right? His spaceship. Um, And he himself, again, he makes no effort to explain, like, the science behind it, right? In fact, I really, I think it's fairly clever, the fact that, Weston refuses to explain the science, right? Because he says to Ransom, you certainly wouldn't understand it. And if there were any concern that you might understand it, you would certainly not be told. Uh, so uh, the, the sort of the secrecy of Weston is, you know, all of the excuse that he needs for not explaining it. And I think that's, that's a little bit clever anyway. Um, but, uh, but he is not at all interested in the mechanism of the thing, right? He is not at all interested in how the spaceship travels. He needs to get Ransom from Earth to Malacandra so that Ransom can have these experiences on Malacandra, so Ransom can go through what he goes through. That's what he's really interested in, right? Um, And it's not that he's uninterested in the journey, He's very interested in the journey through space. He's just not interested in the mechanism of the journey, right? He's not interested in the motive power of what drives the spaceship or how fast it's going or anything like that, right? What he is interested in is the experience of being in the heavens, as we'll get to here in our in our early passages. Um, but I think it's, um, uh, you know, different people will react to it different ways. Some people love the how part, you know, and and as we've talked about before, there's whole sort of you know subgenres of science fiction that are intensely interested in in the how. Those that that Lewis, in one of his essays, called the 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 the, the, the fiction of the engineers, um, which is fine. Like he doesn't say that in scorn. It's 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 like that is what it is. People like that, and that's fine. So if you're not if your tastes don't run alongside Lewis's here, that's okay. Um, what I would ask, though, and what I think is important uh, when reading a book like this is making sh- it's perfectly legitimate to say, I see what this—the kind of thing that this book is interested in—and I'm not as interested in the kinds of things that it's interested in. So you know, like this book and I will like agree to disagree, right? Uh, this book and I will—well, we we can kind of go our separate ways because we're kind of not interested in uh, in 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 the same thing, right? What the thing that sometimes I get a little bit twitchy about is when people basically try to criticize the book for doing poorly something it's not even making any attempt to do, which it has no interest in doing at all. Um, so that's the part that I, 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 I get a little cranky about sometimes. Um, just on general principle, I think it's not, it's not about defending this book. It's about, uh, I think, just, just kind of good approaches to reading. The important thing is to try to figure out, like, what is this book doing? And what is this book interested in? And you don't have to share its interests um but it's it's not quite fair to essentially say, "I don't like this book because it isn't another book," <laughs> which is essentially what you're saying if you if what you're wanting is more about the mechanism of space travel um, uh, yeah yeah um yeah, good um <laughs> David says, the thing I find annoying is that the one instance Lewis tried to explain something, the gravity on the ship, he got the strength of the gravity quite badly wrong. Well, you know, um, Lewis is no scientist, doesn't pretend to be, and I find, um, the one thing I would say there is simply, um, 1930s, right? I mean, uh, it's hard for us to. It's it's hard for us as as I was saying on the last slide we were looking at last week. It's hard for us to enter into the full kind of emotional experience of what the word and the concept of space um, evoked for people in the 30s, right? I mean, it's just not only is it different in the 2020s, you know, it's different. It was different in the 1970s, you know, after the moonwalk. Um, It's just things are not the same. Um, Nor, of course, I think are things the same after Star Trek and Star Wars, honestly. So um, that's one sort of example along those lines. But the other thing, you know, David, that I keep coming back to there is, again, like, we've seen so many, you know, videos of like real astronauts on real spaceships and what things are like. Uh, It's hard to kind of put us back into a place of imagining, um, uh, imagining completely uh, what it's, um, you know, knowing nothing, right? Knowing nothing uh, uh, firsthand uh, and trying to, to sort of guess. But again, it's not about guessing. That's one of the things that some science fiction books do, is try to get it all right, right? Try to guess exactly how things would work under these circumstances and everything. And Lewis does some of that, but it's 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 not about it's it's not the science that he's interested in, really, right? Um, what he's interested in is are these two things, namely space and the foreign planet, as the framework for an imagined world, right, and having, uh, and he invites us to enter into this secondary world that he's creating, and that invitation and those secondary worlds are not qualitatively different, like that process on our part as readers is not qualitatively different from the invitation that we get, you know, when we're reading The Hobbit, for instance, right, and we're being invited to invest secondary belief in a secondary world. Right. Um, in fact, you know, again, in, in some of his essays on science fiction, one of the things that he talks about there is simply how um, one of the natural one of the reasons that he finds science fiction to be uh, a genre, very naturally increasing in population uh, population. Well, yes, population, popularity, I mean to say um, in uh, in the 20th century, over the course of the 20th century, is that. Um, it's not just that space, like plausible space travel is getting closer and closer. The point that he makes is that Terra Incognita on Earth is smaller and smaller, right? You know, he goes back to, you know, he, he sort of does this experiment thinking back and saying, you know, in, uh, you know, the, the, the 15th and 16th century, um, in order to have a, like, otherworldly setting for your story, you just had to go deep into the forest. Right. And that was Terra Incognita. And who knows what could go, what could be going on in there. Right. Uh, then later on, you know, after the 18th century, you have to you have to go to islands like Brobdingnag and Lilliput. Right. Way out across the oceans. Um, uh, but soon the whole world, you know, and then you have to, like Jules Verne, go to the center of the earth. Right. Um, or then, you know, but so like basically as our actual explore, exp- exploration advances. And as terra incognita, which, uh, you know, opens vistas for imagination, right. Um, as that moves further and further out, space is not the final frontier, but in Lewis's argument, the next logical frontier, right. Uh, for that imaginative context. And that's one of the things, uh, that he's, uh, that he's, that he's doing. um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Colette says uh, that he's glad, uh, she's glad he got some of the science wrong and glad he didn't focus on it. Uh, it's a much more enchanting read, especially now. You can feel the sheer wonder of the journey. Yes, uh, Colette, I agree. In many ways, I agree. Um, you know, a a book which attempted to accurately predict what it would really be like, you know, based upon all possible available scientific evidence and speculation, what space travel would actually be like and feel like, um, someone who wrote a book like that, even if they, even if they were very remarkably accurate in predicting that, I would find that book much less interesting to read than I find, uh, than I find this book. Um, but, um... Uh, Anyway, anyway, but Karina, no, you're certainly right. Space, the next logical frontier, does not have the same ring to it. Uh, You're certainly correct about that. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, anyway, um, let's uh, stop talking about talking about the text, and let's actually go on and talk about the text. This is Ransom speaking with Weston. And you say this place is inhabited, said Ransom. Weston gave him a peculiar look, and then nodded. The uneasiness which this produced in Ransom rapidly merged in an anger which he had almost lost sight of amidst the conflicting emotions that beset him. "'And what has all this to do with me?' he broke out. "'You have assaulted me, drugged me, and are apparently carrying me off as a prisoner in this infernal thing. What have I done to you? What do you say for yourself?' I might reply by asking you why you crept into my backyard like a thief. If you had minded your own business, you would not be here. As it is, I admit that we have had to infringe your rights. My only defense is that small claims must give way to great. As far as we know, we are doing what has never been done in the history of man, perhaps never in the history of the universe." We have learned how to jump off the speck of matter on which our species began. Infinity, and therefore perhaps eternity, is being put into the hands of the human race. You cannot be so small-minded as to think that the rights or the life of an individual or of a million individuals are of the slightest importance in comparison with this. I happen to disagree, said Ransom, and I have always disagreed, even about vivisection. But you haven't answered my question. What do you want me for? What good am I to you on this, on Malachandra? Okay, Um, so this is one of the core concepts underlying the book, right? This is one of the core things that the book is addressing, Um, especially in this early part, right? And Weston is the spokesperson for this modern idea, right? Modern in the 1930s um and uh, very increasingly culturally significant idea right about the advance of science right and about progress with a capital p and what this means um weston's weston is an idealist right um he is not it seems fairly clear to me that Weston is he's not making any attempt he Lewis rather sorry I should be a little more clear with my pronouns. Uh Lewis is not I think trying to um sort of say anything in particular about physics or physicists, right? Um Weston I think is not meant to be read as you know a uh a sort of a caricature um or like a portrait or even a caricature I should say of a physicist or a great physicist. Um, he is the, the modern intellectual he's the stand in for the, the voice, uh, piece essentially of the modern intellectual, right? The 1930s intellectual, um, who believes very wholeheartedly in, in all of these things, right. Um, in these high ideals, um, Infinity and therefore perhaps eternity is being put into the hands of the human race to advance the human race, to further that ineluctable advancement of the human race that we are all caught up in. That is the highest end. And Weston, although he acknowledges that it's wrong to do what he did to Ransom, right? Remember, he even said that to Divine. He resisted bringing Ransom instead of bringing the neighbor boy, right? He wanted to bring the neighbor boy because he was arguing that the neighbor boy basically didn't have rights, right? Being su- being a little, a bit simple, as his mom said, he was, Weston considers him subhuman, right? And so, th- you know, he's like a lab rat to Weston. Ransom, although he doesn't, appro- although Weston doesn't approve of Ransom, um, he nevertheless acknowledges that Ransom as an intelligent, if misguided, uh, human be is at least a human being, right, and has some kind of claim. However, look, there's no question about the fact that the claims of one person obviously totally outweighed uh, by the the good of the entire human race and of the, the the spectacular significance of this program that they are that they are caught up in, right? Ransom disagrees. I don't know. Good. Jennifer, that's exactly what I wanted to address. I think that to many modern people, the reference to vivisection might seem a little bit odd, uh, or even a bit like a non-sequitur. So vivisection, of course, vivisection means cutting open and experimenting on animals while they are still alive. Right? So cutting open you know, like a rat or a cat or a dog or something while it lives to be able to see how its systems are working. Right? It was a it was a it was a um, a technique, of course, just for increasing our understanding of the biological system, basically. But there were many who said it's wrong. Like I don't care if it's just a cat or a dog or a rat. You are inflicting horrible pain on that creature, and the ends don't justify the means. Yes, through the research you are doing in. Uh, through your vivisection you may be gaining knowledge that could be used to you know for good ends right that um, that could be used uh, to uh, uh, you know help cure diseases and and further surgical techniques and all these kinds of things um, but uh but it's it's but again so there were there it, it, this is a hot topic in the first like quarter of the 20th century um, and there were a lot of people um, one other contemporary uh, example jumps to my mind uh, you may if uh, if you're a, a, a murder mystery fan and you have read any dorothy sayers the lord peter whimsey books in the very first lord peter whimsey adventure whose body um, the guy i'm pretty sure it's the guy who ends up as the corpse uh, has the ha- he goes around handing out anti vivisection pamphlets from door to door in his apartment building because it's a cause that he cares about very much. Um, uh, anyway, so it's uh, uh, it's uh, yeah, Jocelyn, I'm a huge fan of Dorothy Sayers, uh, as Tolkien was not uh, at least not of the Lord P- Peter Wimsey books, um, but uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, all of the Lord Peter Wimsey stuff. Anyway, sorry. So uh, vivisection is and so the reason Ransom brings up vivisection here. Right. He is saying I've disagreed and I've always disagreed even about vivisection. right? So even on like small scale things. Right. Um, You know, the question of is it or is it not okay to kidnap me and bring me off to my death? Right. You know, that's that's one thing. I mean, so I, not only do I not support that, uh, do I not? Do I think you've got your ends and means messed up there? But I didn't even, you know, I, I, I even have always disagreed about vivisection, right? Even, and that seems like such a small thing in comparison. That is the the sort of the thrust of his argument here. Um, yes, yes. And Bruce, you are absolutely right that it is important that this is before World War Two, um, and so this has. No, it is important for us to remember that this is uh, this is happening before the, you know, like story, you know, big stories of atrocities in World War Two and that kind of thing. Um, Yeah. Anyway. um, okay, Uh, These issues now as we see in chapter six through 10, which we are in fact going to get to tonight, um, Weston and divine drop out of the story. Um, Weston divine are here at the beginning and for the, uh, for the trip up, they're going to go away. They're going to come back, right? We're going to, we're going to come back to them near the end of the story. Um, so they are, they serve not quite as a framing mechanism, but when we come back to them, it's going to be, it's going to be sort of interesting to see them. Um, Here's another example, actually, of, and this is different. This is not like a a kind of science science fiction thing, but it's another example of people sometimes judging a book to fail at a thing which it is not attempting. Right. Um, uh, And this. All right. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a neutral ways to talk about this. because I don't want to sound like I just have it in for modern literature. Um, a very great deal of modern literary reception is focused on characters. Uh, in fact, well-rounded, believable, and dynamic. Characters may possibly be like the, you know, the sine qua non of modern literature. Like if you if if you if you, if your book doesn't have that, it's not good. And it kind of doesn't matter what else it does. Um, if someone can read your book and say these characters are flat or these characters are static, um, then like that's very damning. There's very little that's more damning. Um, and if a book has well-rounded and dynamic characters, many other flaws in it are overlooked so long as its characters are really good. This is just, it's, it's just kind of a fixation, uh, of the modern world. I emphasize that it's a fixation of the modern world because sometimes people will talk as if that's the only, like, that is like the definition of good literature, you know, and this Um, The reason this is kind of a sensitive point for me is that, you know, in my experience over the years as a medievalist teaching medieval literature, uh, it drives me bonkers when people who are like completely uh, steeped or rather cloistered within the modern perspective go back to works of a different era and are like, yeah, characters are so flat. Like this, this, this story sucked. And I'm like. Okay, like there are other ways, there are other kinds of excellence that a story can have. There are other values that we can apply when we're looking at, like, that's not the only thing, and our fixation on that is comparatively modern. Anyway, uh, Lewis is not ignorant of this, but he speaks again in some of his critical essays, his literary critical essays. uh, He speaks about how, like, there are, in fact, other things uh, in stories, and how, in some kinds of stories, you don't want well-rounded and dynamic characters. Like, for instance, one of the arguments that he makes about Lewis Carroll, right? He talks about, he gives Lewis Carroll as an example and says, Alice, of course, in Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, um, Alice is, is not a very, neither a very dynamic uh, nor a very well-rounded character. Like, she's she's kind, she's deliberately a flat and not enormously interesting in and of herself character. And that's why the books are successful, because uh, everything else around her is so strange and so bizarre, right, that having Alice as this sort of safe touchstone enables the rest of that story to work. Um uh, yeah, Amber says Lovecraft's characters are an afterthought at best. The ideas are the thing. Exactly. There are so many things that are it, that you can do. It's, sometimes it's about the it's it's about plot. Sometimes it's about ideas. Uh, sometimes even it's about like atmosphere, even more than it's about characters. Anyway, I say all these things because Weston and Divine, Weston and Divine are not designed to be dynamic characters. Right? The two of them are there. In large part, I would say, to represent or to voice ideas, right um, you've got ransom on the one hand and you've got Weston and divine on the other hand, and you've got the two of them because the two of them represent very different sides of you know one of the things that's happening here in this book is we have a dramatization of the implications of these trends of modern thought at the time in the thirties, right. Um, Weston and Divine, both are spokespeople. Like They both give voice to one of two different kinds of very sort of trendy modern thinking. Right. And they're not supposed to be dynamic characters. They're not supposed to change. They're not mere caricature either. Um, But they're not supposed to be well-rounded characters either. We're not supposed to really, like, invest in them as people. We don't invest in Weston as a person. Less so, certainly in this book, Weston gets a little bit more in Paralandra, actually. He comes back in Paralandra, briefly. Uh, We get a little bit more of him as a character in Paralandra than we get here. Um, But again, primarily, they are the spokesperson um, in... uh, the spokesperson of these ideas. And that's... Okay, and again, especially like he Lewis himself said of Lewis Carroll in *Through the Looking Glass*, right? Uh, in this book, this book is really interested not in the characters but in the stuff outside, right? What they encounter, um, and not just in the subcreation of Malacandra, but in what how the exploration of this subcreation of Malacandra, how that informs our our ideas ultimately we are looking back at the silent planet right we are looking back at our world this is a this is a book that is at the end of the day not really about malakandra it's really about earth right that's where the primary interest is but what it by bringing us to malakandra it gives us an entirely new perspective on all of these earthly things right and Weston and Divine are the representatives and spoke spokespersons of two of those dominant perspectives. And it's therefore it's crucial that they're not going to change. Right. Um, Because when we come back and meet them again, Ransom is going to be seeing things from an entirely new perspective by then. Right. And hopefully we in traveling along with him will also have had some really interesting opportunities to refresh our own perspective. So when we meet Weston and Divine again at the end, and they have not changed and they are still what they were and still representing what they represented at the beginning, the experience of encountering them again at the end is meant to be a little bit shocking. Not because they're different, but because they're the same, but because we're different. Right. Um, And I think that's a really neat um, I, I think that's a really nifty project that it's undertaking. Um, co-edit absolutely would. Developing Weston and Divine too much as individual characters would muddy the ideas and distract from the plot. It absolutely would. It absolutely, It's crucial that they remain static in that way uh, in order for the book to accomplish its end. Now, if you don't like the end? Again, if it doesn't speak to you, if you're not interested in that kind of story, it's okay. Nobody can force you to, be, to like that, that kind of thing, right? But again, the thing that I think is only fair is to first see what the story is, in fact, trying to do and not, uh, you know, pronounce it a bad story because it does not it fails to do the thing that it isn't attempting to do uh, is is the is the thing. Um, But um, anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, Sarah. Cool. Yeah. No, it's it is. This is a kind of unless you read. A substantial amount of non-modern literature. It's something you can totally take for granted. The whole character-centric thing of modern, of modern literature. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a comparatively new uh, thing. Um, it's not to say that there was no such thing as character development or anything. I'm not, I'm not, you know, making those kinds of, uh, those kinds of, of, of exaggerations, but, but it certainly, it wasn't about, it wasn't about that, and that was certainly not the fixation uh, of things. Um But, um, anyway, okay. Hmm. Karita says that, uh, Weston and Divine are one or two steps removed from characters in a morality play. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about them, actually. And then Karita goes on to ask, if they were in a morality play, what would they be named? Well, one thing I can tell you, Karita, is that Divine's name, I think, is deliberately ironic, right? Um as his his attitude is exactly about the profane, right not about the divine um, and uh, yeah I don't know that's it's a, a really interesting question um, but we'll um, we'll come back to that maybe uh, Carita, again when we meet them again near the end of the book. That'll be, that be that, that would be an interesting time to return to this uh, to that question. Okay. let's go on. Well said Ransom, you hold all the cards, and I must make the best of it. I consider your philosophy of life raving lunacy. I suppose all that stuff about infinity and eternity means that you think you are justified in doing anything, absolutely anything, here and now, on the off-chance that some creatures or other descended from man as we know him may crawl about a few centuries longer in some part of the universe. Yes, anything whatever, returned the scientist sternly, and all educated opinion, for I do not call classics and history in such trash education, is entirely on my side. I am glad you raised the point, and I advise you to remember my answer. In the meantime, if you will follow me into the next room, we will have breakfast. Be careful how you get up. Your weight here is hardly appreciable compared with your weight on Earth. Um, yeah, uh, Brian and Bruce are both wondering if uh, uh, Weston, if Weston's name is meant to suggest that he's like the epitome of modern Western thought, maybe something like that. Uh, it it, it kind of works uh, in, in, uh, in some ways. Um, Ransom does not spend much time arguing his side of things, right? He doesn't try to dispute with Weston the closest thing that he does is this characterization in that first paragraph there. Right? His character, his, he takes Weston's claim, right? Weston's grandiose description about it into, you know, we are being handed infinity and possibly eternity. You know, this is like the the future of the human race is in our hands. That's how Weston talks, right? Ransom essentially argues that's all propaganda, right? That's all window dressing. Here's the actual reality that you're describing, right? What you're saying is that your end, the goal that you have in mind, is to ensure that some creatures or other descended from man as we know him may crawl about a few centuries longer in some part of the universe. That is your grandiose idea about the future of man, right? Um, yeah. In a Yes. So he not only is saying the ends don't justify the means, he's also saying you're kind of fooling yourself about the ends, right? Or rather, the rhetoric that you use, even in your own head, Weston, the the rhetoric that you use with yourself um, about this grand ideal that you have is not honest, right? It is... um, it is putting big labels and grandiose ideas upon very doubtful and uncertain things. You want our descendants to go on living for a really long time. Um, is that, is it good that they should do so? Right. Will they be happy if they do so? Like what, the, you know, it's the assumption that that end is a worthy end in itself. Is the I mean, he's pointing to like what is the core of your belief, right? Why do you want that end? Why do you think that that end is so wonderful that it endure that it justifies you in any means that you could take along the way? Here it's worth killing other people in order that what maybe you increase the odds that something somehow descended from us under what circumstances we don't know may exist for a little bit longer, maybe, right? That's, that's, like, why do it? Why do it? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um. And yes, Arthur, Weston's speech here makes it clear that C.S. Lewis is a humanities guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um. And Sarah, you're absolutely right that Weston does get points for being non-egocentric. He's, uh, yes, yes, he is an idealist. He is an idealist. He believes in something that is greater than himself. Um, And this is something, I think this is an important thing to notice, Sarah, uh, in Weston's philosophy, right? In attempting to sort of encapsulate this modern trend of thought in the 30s this same, you know this this same tide of thought that uh that leads to eugenics and, and and everything else um you know all of that kind of stuff um he he is not saying really at heart it's all like base and crude and um you know, like these people are all just arrogant and selfish and uh I mean arrogant, yes, but um you know they' he he's not saying that, right he He acknowledges that weston has he is an idealist, he has ideals, right? ransom questions, the ground of his ideals, right? What really does that end you're shooting for boil down to? have you ever Have you ever really thought it through in cold prose, Weston? Right. Is what Ransom is doing here. But he's not denying that Weston is, in fact, wanting something not for himself and believes in something greater than himself. That, Sarah, I think, is the primary um, is the primary. Um, conflict or not conflict, the primary difference Basically, between Weston and Divine, right? Divine is very self centered, right? Um, divine does not have lofty ideals. Um, that is where Divine is sort of the flip side of the coin there. Yeah, it's interesting. Stephen says that um, uh, it's not a problem with being self centered, but with being empty, yes, um, and trying to puncture this sort of empty rhetoric of this sort of kind of idealism is one of the things that Lewis, I think, is is fairly clearly attempting here. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Okay, let's keep going. Now we get to the experience of traveling in space. All this, as I have said, was sufficiently disquieting. That is, his thought about being kidnapped and taken to a foreign land by force, for some reason he doesn't know, and all that kind of thing. The odd thing was that it did not very greatly disquiet him. It is hard for a man to brood on the future when he is feeling so extremely well as Ransom now felt. There was an endless night on one side of the ship and an endless day on the other. Each was marvelous, and he moved from the one to the other at his will, delighted. In the nights, which he could create by turning the handle of the door, he lay for hours in contemplation of the skylight. The earth's disk was nowhere to be seen. The stars, thick as daisies on an uncut lawn, reigned perpetually with no cloud, no moon, no sunrise to dispute their sway. There were planets of unbelievable majesty, and constellations undreamed of. There were celestial sapphires, rubies, emeralds, and pinpricks of burning gold. "'Far out on the left of the picture hung a comet, tiny and remote, "'and between all and behind all, "'far more emphatic and palpable than it showed on Earth, "'the undimensioned, enigmatic blackness. "'The lights trembled. "'They seemed to grow brighter as he looked. "'Stretched naked on his bed, a second Danae, "'he found it night by night more difficult "'to disbelieve in old astrology. "'Almost he felt, wholly he imagined, sweet influence.' Pouring or even stabbing into his surrendered body. First, let me just make sure that everybody understands the references there. A second Danae. What does that mean? This is where we need. I don't know a class in classical myths and legend. Oh, wait, we're offering one this term. What's that? Who was Danae? Lover of Zeus, yep. But what's the important bit? This is for yeah. This is this Greek mythology. In what form, Zeus has slept with women in many different forms. In what form does Zeus appear to Danae? Do you remember? Does anybody remember? Well, mythology quiz. Yes, David, you got it. She is the one who is locked in a tower by, I believe, her father, um, and he comes to her in a beam of light, a shower of, of golden light, uh, which descends upon her uh, and enters into her. Yes. Yes. That is what he is comparing himself to, lying stretched on his bed and feeling the the, 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 the penetration, the infusion of his body by divine radiance, um, he is a second Danai lying there on his bed. Um, that's one important thing that it's we have to make sure to uh, um, uh, comprehend here in order to understand what he's getting at at the end of that paragraph. The second thing, the sweet influence thing. Uh, he's making a very specific reference, uh, which, uh, uh, which I want to make sure I explain. Um, uh, yeah, Veronica, I'm not sure why... Dana, D-A-N-A that's what my text had I'm, I was wondering if that was actually an error because D-A-N-A-E is the normal spelling um, Dana I suppose would be the English version of it but um, to call somebody a second Dana is a little bit weird um, I, I, I was assuming uh, this was. I took this text that I'm using on the slide from an electronic text which I was assuming had made a mistake that they got autocorrected or something there um Good. David said that his text says I would I would have assumed that it would. Anyway, that's why I read it that way. Um, uh, sweet influence. Okay, so according to medieval and renaissance cosmology, the planets and the stars... Have they exert influence upon the world. So like the, the rays of the stars and of the planets and, and, every, and the sun, and, you know, which is one of the planets, of course, um, uh, it comes into, and it has many different kinds of influences on, on the, well, they have many different kinds of influences on the world. Um, the planets, uh, they have influence on the material of the world. That is metals come from them. Um, uh that's where gold comes from by the way uh the sun right sunlight causes gold um trust me it happens um uh uh the sh- the light of venus produces anyone copper right okay yeah um uh so anyhow so that that's that's one it's it's one but it's only a minor thing it also affects people right? It, it influences people. That exactly, Colette, is where lunacy comes from. That kind of madness is one of the ways in which the influences of the moon can act upon people and bring uh, bring about madness, often temporary madness. Um, Mars absolutely does cause iron, Stephen. And now, for the bonus round, what metal does Jupiter cause? Anyway, okay, so uh, it also—so, it affects people. This is also where uh, the idea of people being uh, affected at their birth came from as well. Uh, that if you are born, uh, when like uh, Saturn, for instance, heaven help you, was dominant, uh, Saturn is, that's in Fortuna Major. That's, that's like the bad, bad planet that makes horrible disasters happen. You're likely to have an unlu- unlucky life uh, if uh, Saturn was dominant at your birth. Um, and, um, uh, Sarah, you've got it. Tin. Tin is the metal inspired by Jupiter. Very good. Very good. Um, uh, Mercury is easy. Mercury. Uh, but anyway. Uh, okay. So they also influence not just individual people, but also events. Um, that is to like, The outbreak of wars and uh, calamities as well as, you know, great good, like, plenty of harvest and things like that. These are all things that are under the influence of different planets. So it was believed uh, that the Earth was sort of the center of these influences of the planets. So, Ransom is... The experience that he actually has in space, right, is he finds it to be what he is doing here. And what we are what Lewis is dramatizing in this paragraph is a total paradigm shift on Ransom's part. Remember that last slide from last time that the concept of space the cold, empty vacuity, right? The, uh, the, the the emptiness that lies, you know, the, the, the infinite, resounding emptiness that lies outside our atmosphere um, was something which had been a source of terror to him in his imagination through his entire life. Mm-hmm. And here, finding himself in space, he finds that he has to completely reorient himself, right? He is not any longer... Um, he's in space and he finds himself not to be in emptiness, but to be surrounded by glory, right? As he's looking out in the, and you see these this beautiful description of the stars with no atmosphere, right? Um, and the radiance of the sun, again, not dimmed by atmosphere. Uh, and uh, he is... Um, yeah, he's... he's uh, He finds the experience to be almost the opposite of what his own imagination sort of prompted by his sort of cultural context, what it led him to imagine. And he, of course, Ransom, is, uh, you know, a philology Don. So he's read quite a bit of old books. So he knows all about the medieval ideas of space. Uh, how And they never used the word space, of course. Of course, they called it the heavens. And when he gets out there, he has this reorientation where he realizes, you know what? It's more like what the medieval said than what the moderns imagine. Right. Um, and so notice it, it, he doesn't actually say that his body was in fact being filled with sweet influences, like he's being acted upon and changed by the radiance of the heavens. He doesn't actually say that, right? Almost he felt wholly he imagined sweet influence pouring or even stabbing into his surrendered body, right? One of the points of this is the surrender. His surrender to this new idea, to this reorientation of his, of his imagination, right? Of his mythic concepts, Um, and recognizing that there is some, you know, this so one of the things you could say that Lewis is doing here in this passage is saying what if there's more to the old myths than we think, right? That's not to say that they're exactly right about everything, right? But what if they're not totally wrong either? Um, What if in some ways at least the old concept of the heavens is more real is more true than the modern concept of space. You're right, Stephen. Ransom has definitely read the right sort of books. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Veronica, I cannot explain their casual but insistent nudity on the ship. I don't get it either. Um, Yeah, I've never fully understood uh, like why they all sort of take for granted that being naked the whole time is the best idea. I, I've, yeah, don't, know, don't understand. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Devora, exactly. I agree with you. Presumably Weston and Divine don't feel like this, right? Um, maybe because they're not surrendered, she asked, still focused on their own ideas, Yes, D'Vore, and I think we have some very positive evidence about that. You'll remember there is one piece of hand-waving that Lewis does do about the motive power of the spaceship, right? He only makes one extremely vague gesture towards explaining how the ship travels through space. Do you remember what it is? Remember what it is? Yes, David, exactly. He's, uh, he's taking advantage of an hither, of a hitherto unknown property of sunlight, right? There is something in the solar rays which he has discovered and which he has learned to harness. We don't know what it is. We don't know how he's harnessed it. Those are all, anyway, trade secrets, and Weston wouldn't tell you. Um, uh, but but that's it. So, Devorah, you see the significance of that, right? Weston, not only has reason to suspect that there is power in the rays of the sun. He's proved it scientifically. His entire ship runs on it, right? He knows his whole thing is that he discovered that the rays of the sun have a power and a potency beyond what is normally experienced and, uh, uh, and perceived by people, and and something that is unimagined by most other modern people. And yet, Devorah he does not have Ransom's experience here, right? He does not seem to share Ransom's perspective. And the difference, it's not that he's unaware of it. It's that he's not surrendered to it. Um, and I think that that's... Um, uh, I think that that's really interesting right Um, I think it's not for nothing that we're told that one little thing right Um, exactly Devora Weston's whole attitude is to exploit those properties right and therefore in a sense to appropriate them his power in a sense is based upon the power that he is harnessing out of the sun right the power that he has identified and is making use of Um, it's it's in that sense that is about him Right. Um, he is self-centered in that way, or rather has that kind of a self-centered outlook on uh, certainly contrasted with Ransom's surrender here uh, to the sweet influences. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um Okay, Go, let's keep going. But Ransom, as time wore on, became aware of another and more spiritual cause for his progressive lightening and exaltation of heart. A nightmare, long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science, was falling off him. He had read of space. At the back of his thinking for years had lurked that dismal, the dismal fantasy of the black, cold vacuity, the utter deadness which was supposed to separate the world's. He had not known how much it affected him till now, now that the very name Space seemed a blasphemous libel for this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam. He could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him from it every moment. How indeed should it be otherwise, since out of this ocean the worlds and all their life had come? He had thought it barren. He saw now that it was the womb of worlds, whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down nightly, even upon the earth with so many eyes, and here, with with how many more? No, space was the wrong name. Older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens, the happy climes that lie where day never shuts his eye up in the broad fields of the sky. He quoted Milton's words to himself lovingly, at this time and often. Yeah, Stephen, he's totally read the right books. Um, the important concept that Lewis is introducing here and which Ransom is wrestling with, right, is this sort of the latent and unspoken, this, this idea of the mythology that follows in the wake of science, right? Um, that this is, uh, and I agree with Lewis, a very important concept, right? There are many things which... Uh, and I think it, it, Lewis had argues, and I agree with him, that in the modern world, there's a there's often a very general lack of distinction about this. One of the myths that he talks about a lot uh, is sort of the um, the the myth which is the modern myth which is most mo- which is most generally associated with evolution, right? The evolutionary myth. Now, keep in mind, this is Lewis we're talking about. He does not use the word myth in the modern sense, right? The way that moderns use the word myth to mean something that's false, but people believe it anyway, right? That's, that's kind of the modern definition of the word myth, and Lewis uh, almost never uses the word in that sense, right? A myth is a much more important thing, right? It is, uh, it is, it, it is a thing that people believe in. Um, it, is a, it is a concept. It is, a, uh, it is like an archetypal idea. Right. And the point that he makes about that he's making about space here. Right. Is that the as we have come to learn more about the solar system and as we have, you know, up through the 30s, speculated more and more about what, you know, space is like um, a mythology has, you know, has grown up in the modern mind. I mean, this is um, uh, this is uh um. This it, this this happens. Like it's not like people are, per, you know, he's accusing people of uh, like perpetuating myths in order to deceive people or convince people or something like that. It's it's just it's how we think, right? Um, we create mythologies, and if we're not conscious of it, like if we if uh, if if you're a person who, you know. Doesn't like mythology and dislikes mythology. It just means that the mythology that you are invested in is going to be unexamined by you, right? That's Lewis's argument, anyway. That like we as human beings are inveterate uh, mythmakers, and and we just so like that. And and again, what he's pointing to here is the link between the 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 mere statements of fact, which are the result of scientific observation, right, and the concept and the ideas that they evoke right the concepts the the feelings um, the overall sort of world view that they in, that they bring forward right that they that they encourage um, that's what he is uh, um, uh that's what he's sort of pointing to here um, yeah. Yeah. So w- when I mentioned the evolutionary myth, again, the point is not that Lewis actually said on several occasions that he, you know, he says he's not really 100 percent sure that he's convinced in evolution, but his objections to it are not scientific. Like he he, he doesn't have any necessary objection to the idea of of uh, of evolution um, that is of gradual changes over time occurring uh, in the biological world. Um, what he what, what he's talking about is the myth that underlies it. The myth that he points to there is the myth of progress, right? This idea that the world is trending to like greater and greater perfection and greater, that there is this natural drive in the universe towards progress and perfection. Um, That's the myth that underlies. And as he argues, supports the evolution, like the, you know, that he's like, there's there's a reason that, uh, the, um, um, you know the doctrine the teaching of evolution has become uh is is like seized upon so quickly uh because it it is in it's it's in sync with that mythic idea which was already um growing which is already there in the 19th century even before Darwin published anyway um let's keep going this is um, The overheard conversation, right? So Weston outside the door, or sorry, Ransom outside the door, hears Divine talking to Weston, and he can't hear Weston's side. All he can hear is Divine's side. I love this as a literary technique on Lewis's part because of the way that it invites us to fill in the blanks, right? Invites us to imagine Weston's half of the conversation, right? How should I know, said Divine? It may be some sort of chief, much more likely a mumbo-jumbo. This time came a very short utterance from the control room, apparently a question. Divine answered at once. It would explain why he was wanted. Weston asked him something more. Human sacrifice, I suppose. At least it wouldn't be human from their point of view, you know what I mean. Weston had a good deal to say this time, and it elicited Divine's characteristic chuckle. "'Quite, quite,' he said. "'It is understood that you are doing it all from the highest motives. "'So long as they lead to the same actions as my motives, you are quite welcome to them.' Weston continued, and this time Divine seemed to interrupt him. "'You're not losing your own nerve, are you?' he said. He was then silent for some time, as if listening. Finally he replied, "'If you're so fond of the brutes as that, you'd better stay and interbreed. "'If they have sexes, which we don't yet know—' Don't you worry. When the time comes for cleaning the place up, we'll save one or two for you, and you can keep them as pets or vivisect them or sleep with them or all three, whichever way it takes you. Yes, I know. Perfectly loathsome. I was only joking. Good night. What do we learn from this conversation? Yes, good. David Urbach says Divine reveals his severe amorality. Yes, exactly. Um, Note the contrast between Weston and Divine implicit in the it is understood that you are doing it all from the highest motives. Right. Um, Weston had a good deal to say that we don't hear. We don't need to hear it because we've heard it before. Right. What's he responding to? Why is Weston making a long speech there? Based on what we've seen of Weston, how can we fill in that long blank there? Right? What's he um, um, what's he what's he saying? Yes, Devor, he's justifying why it's okay to bring another human being to sacrifice to the chief or mumbo jumbo or wh- whoever it is, right? Or whatever it is, um, Weston has acknowledged back in that initial conversation with the divine on earth, right about why it was better to take uh the the neighbor boy than it was to take ransom, whereas remember divine was all practicality, right, yeah, no. Uh, the difference is it's much better to take Ransom than the boy because Scotland Yard could come looking for the boy fairly soon and nobody's going to come looking for Ransom for months. Right. Um, that was Divine's only consideration. Weston's consideration was based on his ideals. Ransom is at least a human being were the words that he used. Right. And even to Ransom, he acknowledged that he was infringing his rights. Right. But, you know, I mean, he'd do it again and more. Uh, because obviously the ends justify the means, so it doesn't matter, and his life is small and unimportant compared with the big deal. But still, that's clearly the kind of speech that he's giving, right? Um, that uh, he's his, it's only because the ends justify the means that he agrees with this. So we we, we, we get that reinforced, but we see very clearly the difference with divine. It is understood that you're doing it all from the highest motives. So long as they lead to the same actions as my motives, you're quite welcome to them. Right? Um, Divine making no attempt to conceal or deceive about the fact that his motives are to... He does not... He's not a believer. Right? He does not share Weston's ideals. He doesn't care anything about the future of the human race. Um... In a sense, of course, he believes in the ends justifying the means, but he doesn't even need justification, right? He is, uh, in that sense, uh, David, I agree with you, amoral. Um, Yeah. uh, David Etley says, uh, The relationship of Weston and Divine seems like a, a synecdoche of the relationship between science and industrial capitalism. Um, there you go, Corita. There's a possible answer. If they were in a morality play, what would their names be? Science and capitalism. That would work. I'm not saying it's the only possible name pairing, but, you know, you could write that play. That would work. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Robert, you're right that... Divine does seem to impute some sympathy for the inhabitants to Weston, right? Um, Weston says all this idealistic, you know, his idealistic stuff. And then Divine is like, whatever, right? But then he continues. And Divine says, you're not losing your own nerve, are you? And then if you're so fond of the brutes, is Weston therefore saying in that, the, uh, the 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 thing that Weston is saying that Divine interrupts with you're not losing your own nerve, is he's wondering whether or not they are quite justified in killing the natives of this planet. Um, perhaps, at least, um, again I don't know that Weston would question his ultimate justification, but sort of acknowledging that uh, you know it's um, it's not just as the 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 killing of ransom is not trivial right it's less important obviously than the end but it's it's not non-existent right it is a factor is he uh acknowledging a similar kind of factor um in uh in you know in in the rest of it um yeah yeah um I agree, Devorah. It's not that I see him balking exactly at killing the natives. I don't think he questions the ultimate justification. But he might be saying something like... Because uh, notice um, one of the things that he's responding to is still back when Divine said human sacrifice. At least it wouldn't be human from their point of view. You know what I mean, right? Um, is he, Weston, speculating about the sort of human or quasi human status of the of the natives um you know are they ra- are they rational species again i don't think he's going to balk at killing them for the good of humanity um that's his ideal but um yeah 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 james stevens asks it makes you wonder what divine brings to the mission um uh, capital i'm almost positive right um this is an investment by Divine. He's put money into this project uh, and plans to get money out of it. Um, so that seems to be the uh, reason for the, uh, the partnership there. Um, we have not heard yet that it is their plan to kill the natives. Well, Jocelyn, we don't until the end there. right? Divine um, does plainly, when he talks about cleaning the place up, it's pretty clear that he's talking about exterminating the natives. He's talking about genocide there. Um, that's why he alludes to saving one or two for you and you can keep them as pets or vivisect them or sleep with them or all three. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the fact that divine starts teasing him about wanting to stay and interbreed does suggest to me that Weston is speculating about the status of the natives of Malachandra, that they are a rational, that they are rational species. Um, uh yeah yeah, um yeah, Coed is wondering if maybe Weston is saying something that weighs like alien genocide against human sacrifice uh you know is one worse than the other in his mind um uh yeah, I mean, very possibly so um. Again, I don't think that he would be hesitating, though he's clearly hesitating enough to make Divine interrupt and ask him if he's hesitating, right? You're not losing your own nerve, are you? That's, I think, clearly how Divine would characterize having a moral qualm, right? Would be losing your nerve uh, to do what needs to be done in order to achieve the end, Um yeah, Corita, I agree. It is very impressive how Weston managed, or Divine, rather, managed to get slavery, rape, and torture all into one punchline. Yep, you are absolutely right. Uh, um, and notice the sort of jocular casualness with which he alludes to all three. Slavery, torture, and rape. Yeah, absolutely. That's Divine. Though he knew it would be poss- it, that it would be prudent to return to his bed as quickly as possible, he found himself standing still in the now familiar glory of the light and viewing it with a new and poignant emotion. Out of this heaven, these happy climes, they were p- presently to descend into what? Sorns? Human sacrifice? Loathsome, sexless monsters? What was a sorn? His own role in the affair was now clear enough. Somebody or something had sent for him. It could hardly be for him personally. The somebody wanted a victim, any victim, from Earth. He had been picked because Divine had done the picking. He realized for the first time, in all circumstances, a late and startling discovery, that Divine had hated him all these years as heartily as he hated Divine. Another one of those small... um, uh, small reorientations, right? But those kinds of reorientations are happening throughout, right? He has always despised Divine, um, and now realize that Divine has always despised him as well. Um, and that that had served as an extra motive. Yes, it was more practical. Yes, he won't be missed, and so therefore is the perfect victim from Divine's point of view. But as a bonus, he's also that sniveling little prig uh, you know, from grammar school you know, from, 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 from public school, which, uh, whom divine has always, has always hated. Um, somebody or something had sent for him. The irony of this passage, I find very poignant. I was suggesting at the beginning that we see some evidence that ransom has, in a sense, been called, right? That ransom, Ends up where he ends up because of doing the right thing, because he found himself in this situation without his control, outside of his control, like meeting the worried mom right in the dark and made her a promise to do the right thing, followed through on his promise to do the right thing, even though it was awkward um, and ended up being taken. And, you know, so he was and now it turns out he was called. Right. In this sense of calling, he has not in some kind of great and grand way, like, uh, you know, some other power was at work there. That's not um, the kind of calling that he perceives. Instead, it's a, it turns out or it seems to be turning out to be a horrible calling. Right. He has been summoned to execution. He has been summoned to be sacrificed to some, you know, uh some pagan god, or more likely in Divine's view, some mumbo-jumbo, right? Some, some, uh, uh, you know, primitive statue that, uh, that these savages all worship, right? Uh, that's, uh, what he sort of has in mind. Um, and you're right, David, that Ransom also had been rather self-focused, right? We see him focused outward in his surrender to the heavens and his, the reorientation of his perspective there, um, but he does have this, there there is still within him, I agree with you, that tendency to, to sort of think uh, of himself very naturally, right? Not criticizing, but you're right about that tendency. Um, but what was a sorn? When he saw them, he would eat out of Weston's hands, quoting Divine there. His mind, like so many minds of his generation, was richly furnished with bogies. He had read his H.G. Wells and others. His universe was peopled with horrors such as ancient and medieval mythology could hardly rival. No insect-like, vermiculate or crustacean abominable. No twitching feelers, rasping wings, slimy coils, curling tentacles. No monstrous union of superhuman intelligence and insatiable cruelty seemed to him anything but likely on an alien world. By the way, how awesome is that sentence? I love that sentence. No insect, like vermiculate or crustacean abominable. I love that phrase. Oh man, vermiculate is the word of the day. By the way, um, it, it means, I believe, worm-like, right? Uh, but anyhow, okay. The sorns would be, would be. He dared not think what the sorns would be, and he was to be given to them. Somehow this seemed more horrible than being caught by them, given, handed over, offered. He saw in imagination various incompatible monstrosities, bulbous eyes, grinning jaws, horns, stings, mandibles, loathing of insects, loathing of snakes, loathing of things that squashed and squelched, all played their horrible symphonies over his nerves. But the reality would be worse. It would be an extraterrestrial otherness, something one had never thought of, never could have thought of. In that moment, Ransom made a decision. He could face death, but not the Sorns. He must escape when they got to Malacandra, if there were any possibility. Starvation, or even to be chased by Sorns, would be better than being handed over. If escape were impossible, then it must be suicide. Ransom was a pious man. He hoped he would be forgiven. It was no more in his power, he thought, to decide otherwise than to grow a new limb. Without hesitation, he stole back into the galley and secured the sharpest knife. Henceforward, he determined never to be parted from it. Yeah, Carita asks his ransom, Catholic. I can't think, Carita, of any positive evidence that would suggest it in the text I mean of course it's tempting to think he's Catholic because he's a philologist kind of like Tolkien and so you know uh, uh, is he Catholic and the, I, I, I hear you Carita the, I mean I assume you're asking that because the, the reference to suicide and hoping he would be forgiven makes you think of it um, it's a great question Uh yeah, I think it's not impossible, but I don't think it's important or else we, we would have been told. Um, and if anyone else can think of any uh, actual reference in the text, which would seem to prove one way or another Ransom's flavor of Christianity, I, I would be interested to hear it. Um, but um, but I can't think that there is. And I also can't think that that's a mistake. On Lewis's part. I don't think he wants to pigeonhole him in that way, but um. <laughs> yeah, three of you right in a row um, three of you right in a row asked if Lewis had ever led read, uh, Red Lovecraft. Better Lewis scholars than I will be able to confirm that. I think so, but I can't, off the top of my head, remember an, a, a, an explicit reference. But if I had to guess, I would say yes. If I had to guess, I'd say yes. Um, let me um, let me make a note. Somebody remind me. remind. <laughs> I don't have time to write it down. Somebody remind me. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I always do when somebody asks me a C.S. Lewis question I can't answer. Ask Brenton Dickinson. Um, I'd also on our Signum faculty, uh, and who uh, just successfully defended his C.S. Lewis dissertation. Um, I'll ask Bren. He'll know. Um, I think so. But um, anyway, okay. But, but yeah, I, 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 my, my guess is yes, that he has read, Lo- read Lovecraft. Anyway, um, okay. Notice an interesting thing here. I've been talking about how Weston and Divine are two sort of representatives of the modern perspective, right? Of different elements in the modern perspective. Um, it's important to remember that Ransom does not stand outside that. Ransom also is a representative of the modern world. And Ransom, of course, the difference is that Ransom is willing to let go of some of his modern prejudices. and Ransom... Acknowledges and feels these myths, and Lewis certainly draws our attention to them, right? But this is these reactions when thinking about being handed over to this alien race. The the kind of myth aliens the mythology about aliens that has grown up in the modern mind, fueled by people like H. G. Wells and people like Lovecraft. Um, uh, has, you know, also bred a kind of dark mythology, right? That has invested the meeting of aliens with, with horror, right? Um, by the way, I, um, uh, I think that... This is another one of those perspectives that's difficult to recapture. Because so much, so many alien stories since the 1930s have worked to change this, right? I mean, it's kind of hard living in a world that includes Baby Yoda from The Mandalorian, right? To have exactly the same feeling of visceral horror and terror uh, that Ransom has when imagining meeting an alien, right? Um And that's only the latest example in a long line of much more, uh, 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 you know, of of some very different uh, concepts of meeting aliens. Right. Um, But um, anyway, we will uh, and we will see more of him wrestling with this. But again, it's important to recall that Ransom is a child of the modern world as well. And he is. He participates in this, you know, he, he is a victim of, and a participant in these modern mythologies. This is as, uh, inveterate for him as, um, uh, this is as inveterate for him as it was for, uh, um, for, uh, about the space, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah good um yes kid exactly uh knowing very little about what we might encounter in other planets, we were expecting to meet more in- uh, to be less intelligent but more pretty than aliens yes exactly um yeah good good um Okay, let's keep going. But, sorry, one last point about the suicide business at the end. This is a big deal, right? Ransom was a pious man. He hoped he would be forgiven. Lewis is making this extreme statement, right? Ransom operating within the perspective that he has always had as a member of, as a, you know, member of the modern world in this moment that he is imagining this being handed over to an alien race for sacrifice, he cannot... He is overpowered completely by it. It is so strong, these feelings of horror and terror are so strong that they overcome even his moral convictions, which are very, very strongly held. Right? He is a pious man. He very strongly believes that suicide is wrong, that suicide is a sin. But in the face of this, all he can do is hope to be forgiven, right? Um, So one of the things that Lewis is pointing out is how even if you don't just line up with the modern world, even if you are deviating from the modern world insofar as to be, say, a Christian, um, you are these two sort of competing mythologies will still like be at war within you, and the one can easily overcome the other, as we see it doing here. Um, okay. Interesting. So yeah, Takako's pointing out that Lovecraft died in 37, and uh, Out of the Silent Planet was written in 38. Yes, but his Lovecraft's um, stories had already been published, hadn't they? for some time by that time. I know that Lewis was reading like weird tales and science, like science fiction, um, you know, magazines and stuff like that. Like he definitely read that stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's why, I th- that's why I assume he has because, um, because you could definitely find Lovecraft in those kinds of, uh, in those kinds of, of, uh, periodicals. Um, okay, good. The Call of Cthulhu was published in 28. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's possible. Um, okay. Excellent. Robert. Thank you. Robert Brown, always so faithful, uh, in, uh, doing research for me. Robert has been, Uh, correcting my errors and supplying my deficiencies for many, many years uh, in these classes and and through my podcast. Thank you. Robert Robert is quoting Dale Nelson, who says it's virtually certain that Lewis was buying the, 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 the magazine Astounding in the mid 30s when the Lovecraft stories appeared there. In his book, The Great Divorce, he acknowledges influence from a story published in an American science fiction magazine. That's what I was thinking of, Robert, when I just said that. Uh, this story was Colossus by Donald Wondre, published in the January 1934 issue. Um, yeah, so I, it's, it's, it is it's definitely known that Lewis was reading these science fiction journals, uh, or not journals, but these science fiction uh, uh, magazines and collections. Um, So that's why I believe, again, I can't, I wish that I, um, I wish that I could think of a reference somewhere in Lewis's works explicitly and unquestionably to Lovecraft. Um, but I can't come up with one off the top of my head. Um, but yes, I certainly agree that it seems, uh, it seems to me very, very likely that he, that he had read him, um, Yes, Amber. Amber says Lewis was reading the right magazines. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, okay. Yeah, Takako. I. 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 I would not surprise me if H.P. Lovecraft. Takako was just saying that Lovecraft uh, might have hated the space trilogy. I, I think that's very possible. Very possible. Okay. All right. Hey, guess where we where we are? Chapter six, like I said, we'd get to. Um. This is his uh, um, experience as they're descending into the atmosphere of Malachandra, and he is experiencing the diminution of the light. And it became certain, too, though the phenomenon was hard to seize, that the light was less overwhelming than it had been at the beginning of the voyage. It became certain to the comparing intellect, but it was difficult to feel what was happening as a diminution of light, and impossible to think of it as darkening, because while the radiance changed in degree, its unearthly quality had remained exactly the same since the moment he first beheld it. It was not like fading light upon the earth, mixed with the increasing moisture and phantom colors of the air. You might have its intensity, Random perceived, and the remaining half would still be what the whole had been, merely less, not other. Have it again, and the residue would still be the same. As long as it was at all, it would be itself." out even to that unimagined distance where its last force was spent. He tried to explain what he meant to Divine. Like thin gummy soap, grinned Divine. Pure soap to the last bubble, eh? Uh, this is another lovely little glimpse into Divine's character, of course. um, Here is Ransom contemplating... Remember, what was it that, um... Weston was hoping that this journey might put within their reach infinity and therefore possibly eternity. And this is exactly what Ransom is contemplating, right? Ransom has, in a very different sense, been given eternity and infinity, right? He has been brought through this journey to experience infinity and eternity in new and different ways. And this realization as the, as the light is diminishing, as they descend, um, uh, or as they approach, I guess I should say, uh, he's beginning to understand how, even as like, yes, the further away from the sun you go, the less its light become, the the less intense its light becomes, right? That's known. That's definitely going to happen. But that doesn't mean that this, this power this 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 mythic potency of the heavens that he's imagining here would tail off right um uh anyway yeah and then um but divine what's divine's closest approach to trying to understand what ransom is attempting to explain to him about infinity and eternity an advertising slogan right he makes a joke comparing it to an advertising slogan pure soap to the last bubble right he can't even remember the name uh of the particular soap right that's being uh, uh that's being advertised um I have a theory about divine there's a word that Lewis and Tolkien both use sometimes Almost never in within their well, very rarely in their fiction, but not infrequently in their um not infrequently in their pro in their in their in their nonfiction prose, their essays. That and I've never been a hundred percent sure that I know exactly what they mean by this word. The word is vulgar. When they use the word vulgar call somebody vulgar. As famously, Tolkien, on at least two occasions, calls Walt Disney vulgar. And the word obviously does not mean, does not have, like, so one of the modern uses of the word vulgar, of course, means using bad language. And I think it's pretty clear that he's not accusing... um Walt Disney of being vulgar in that sense. Anyway, I've never been a hundred percent sure that I've really like conceptually grasped in full what exactly they're conveying by that word vulgar, because they're clearly using it in different ways than I do. Um, I get a general sense, but, but, uh, but I've always felt like there are nuances that I don't understand. Um, uh Yeah. I agree, John and Bruce, that it's it's there's a connected with commonness like low class, yes, but like what element of low class like it's not only like a snobbish statement, right It's not to call someone vulgar is to say more than just to say that he's not our kind of person right there's there's more to anyway. Divine's joke, um, his bringing ransom's description of eternity and infinity back to an advertising slogan. Um, if I had to point to an illustration of what I am guessing. Lewis is pointing to when he uses the word vulgar, it would be that line. Um, Maybe I'm wrong, but, um, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that divine is a vulgar man in the sense, again, there's more to him than that. He's more than just vulgar. He's much worse than just that. But, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, um, uh, yeah. And no, I, I yes, understand. Uh, several of you are, are, are sort of defining vulgar as being, um, you know, a relating to common people. Yes. No, I'm familiar with that definition. But. But what does it mean? Like. What elements of the common people exactly? So, like, for instance, the word villain also means relating to common people. That's what the word comes from, right? Villain just means peasant. Um, So, like, villain, barbarian, and vulgar are three words which all come from the same thing, right? That all have that sort of class-oriented thing. But they mean very different. Like, they have—it's the connotations of the word that I don't feel like—that I'm not—I want to make sure I'm understanding better. Um, But, um, anyway. Anyway. Okay. Um— Yes Arthur you are absolutely right that whatever else that line is it is a piece of divine comedy yes have to give you props for that one Arthur okay uh, by the way i'm not thinking i'm going to solve the answer to like what vulgar means uh i'm doing the only thing i can do which is trying to understand in the big picture of, like, things that they describe and how they use the word and and various contexts to try to get a kind of inductive sense of what that word means to them. Um, Anyway. Okay. Here is another one of those reorientations. What had been a chariot gliding in the fields of heaven became a dark steel box dimly lighted by a slit of window and falling. They were falling out of the heaven, into a world. Nothing in all his adventures bit so deeply into Ransom's mind as this. He wondered how he could ever have thought of planets, even of the earth, as islands of life and reality floating in a deadly void. Now, with a certainty which never after deserted him, he saw the planets, the earths, he called them in his thought, as mere holes or gaps in the living heaven, excluded and rejected wastes of heavy matter and murky air, "'formed not by addition to, but by subtraction from, the surrounding brightness. "'And yet,' he thought, "'beyond the solar system the brightness ends. "'Is that the real void? The real death? "'Unless,' he groped for the idea, "'unless visible light is also a hole or gap, a mere diminution of something else, "'something that is to bright, unchanging heaven, as heaven is to the dark, heavy earths. "'Things do not always happen as a man would expect.' The moment of his arrival in an unknown world found Ransom wholly absorbed in a philosophical speculation. Um, this reversal of that modern mythology, and this is the space mythology, right? Um, uh, this is uh, that, 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 that mythology that was attached to the word space that so terrified him. The idea that our planet, right, the the, the the radically anthropocentric viewpoint that imagines our planet as being this oasis of light and life and activity and thought and creativity. And then the empty, dark void surrounds it, reaching out to all eternity. Right. Um, this, by the way loops back around thinking of the heavens and of space to one of the points that Lewis makes, I think, very convincingly, very very appropriately when talking about the, the shift from the medieval to the modern viewpoint. A lot of modern people talk as if the shift from the modern, the, 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 the old geocentric concept of the solar system, uh, the shift from the geocentric to the heliocentric solar system was a shift making man less central, less important. Um, it is the opposite of what actually happened. Um, and Lewis has shown this very clearly. When you look at how medieval people actually talked about the geocentric world, they believed, yes, that the Earth was the, uh, was the sort of the geometric center of the solar system, but it wasn't the most important thing. It was the opposite. It was the off-scouring of the universe. It was the garbage tip of the solar system. Um, Another pop quiz. According to Dante, what is at the center of the world? What is the very center of the entire solar system? Satan. Exactly. Wait, and good, David's got it. More specifically, Satan's genitals. Yes. Satan's penis is the center of the world like literally at the gravitational center of the earth um uh exactly exactly um hell is the center of the world satan is at the center of hell satan's genitalia are at the center of satan um the very uh, gravitational center of the world is satan's groin that is to say being the center does not mean it's the most important um and and also, by contrast, if you read the writings of people like Galileo and others, they saw the shift, right? The the reconception of the solar system, not as a demotion of the Earth. Like, we no longer can we deceive ourselves that the Earth is the most important thing in the solar system. They saw it as a promotion. They said, now the Earth can take its place among the heavens, right? Now we know that we are operating on equally This was a step in the direction of humanism and the enlightenment, a step in the direction of an elevated view of the importance of man, um, not the other way around. So Ransom's shifting of perspective here, this final, his final um, um, solution, right? His final uh, um, healing, right? From this modern myth of space and what the world is and contrasted to space is, is this absolute reversal, right? Um, the Earths are not islands of life and reality floating in a deadly void. Um, but they are excluded and rejected wastes of heavy matter and murky air formed not by addition to, but by subtraction from the surrounding brightness. Now, in some ways, of course, his, uh, his attitude towards the planets is a little bit more negative than he will later hold. Um, he, this also, he will continue to come to understand better, uh, as he moves, uh, as he moves forward, um, (laughs) <laughs> Arthur says I shouldn't use the phrase "final solution" with De- with Divine and Weston around. They might run with that. True enough. True enough. Um. Uh. Yeah. Good. Anyway. So this is an, th- th- more change will happen to this perspective, but uh, uh, but nevertheless, this is a this is a radical shift and a type of the sort of radical shift that's going to be happening that uh, that Lewis is introducing through his subcreation. This again. If, there's, if, if there is a point of this piece of science fiction, it is not to guess about what the future might look like and how things might work in the future, right? The point of this is, this is the point of this. Um, to travel, to be transplanted onto a distant world, and by doing so, have many of the things that we take for granted about the world and the universe shifted, changed, even turned on their heads, right? Um. Okay, so he's kept real busy, so he doesn't have time to just sort of uh, do sightseeing when he uh, first steps out of the of the spaceship onto Malacandra. But something he learned before anything else, he learned that Malacandra was beautiful and he even reflected how odd it was that this possibility had never entered into his speculations about it. The same peculiar twist of imagination which led him to people the universe with monsters had somehow taught him to expect nothing on a strange planet except rocky desolation, or else a network of nightmare machines. He could not say why now that he had come to think of it. He also discovered that the blue water surrounded them on at least three sides. His view in the fourth direction was blotted out by the vast steel football in which they had come. The hut, in fact, was built either on the point of a peninsula or on the end of an island. He also came, little by little, to the conclusion that the water was not merely blue in certain lights, like terrestrial water, but really blue. There was something about its behavior under the gentle breeze which puzzled him, something wrong or unnatural about the waves. For one thing, they were too big for such a wind. But that was not the whole secret. They reminded him of something he had read in one of those modern poets about a sea rising in turreted walls. Okay, so several things here. One again, another sort of add on to this mythological shift that he's undergoing. Right. Just as he by default imagines aliens to be, uh, you know, monsters of uh, of unlimited intelligence and insatiable cruelty. um, uh, So he also imagined space to be an empty vacuity. uh, And so he also imagined alien worlds to be one of two things either rocky desolation or a network of nightmare machines. The idea that he lands on this planet and f- discovers it to be beautiful is something that he had never expected. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, David asks, how much uncertainty are we as readers supposed to have about which planet they're on? I don't think he's meaning to make it too hard. I mean, he's going to find out for sure. Uh, that will be known. Um, and he's dropping enough clues over the course of chapter six to 10 for us to be able to guess with some certainty. Um, especially once we get to the Hondramets and the Harandra. Um, but, um, uh, that is to the, to his, uh, his sort of, no, well, not discovery, but, um, uh, teaching being taught about the you know topography of the planet, um, but it's not yet important. I would say, David, which one it is? As, one, as I think that's the primary reason that um, he hasn't said it, and I've been trying not to say it yet either. Um, the first thing that happens is Ransom's experience of the new world, and the. Renewal and uh, the alteration of his mythological assumptions of his uh, of his perspectives and uh, uh, and just sort of assumptions about how things work. Um, The first thing to happen is that his whole orientation has to change uh, first. After that, he learns not only which planet this is, but its place and how it relates. So basically identifying this planet with which planet in earthly terms it is, is part of the process of Ransom's applying his new perspective to the larger issue, but basically looking back towards Earth, essentially. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Good. Okay. Um, the other thing, there is one interesting way in which I think one of the ways in which, you know, I've said that Lewis is doing subcreation here, and that the kind of subcreation he does in this book is very similar to the kind of subcreation that happens in a fantasy work. Right? There's it's it's not very different. The one way in which the subspecies of fantasy that's happening here is of a more science fiction kind than like what, let me say this a different way. The thing that out of the silent planet has in common more with, um, you know the War of the Worlds than it does with the Lord of the Rings is that the fundamental what if frame it's not about what if you know the uh the ancient stories about elves have some grounding in truth, and there really was a time uh when uh you know the the Elves were dominant in history and magic was still functioning in the world. That's not his concept, right? And the concept isn't that. It's not that kind of an if. Um, The kind of what if that he's asking is fundamentally a scientific what if. Imagine you're on a different planet. And he takes some elements of some scientific speculations as the premise of his what if. Right. And specifically, the number one most dominant element, I would say, in his subcreation is. What if you were on a planet that had a lighter gravity than ours, but it had all these other things? It has running water. It has uh, it has, you know, weather. It has wind and stuff. It has plants. It has animals. Right. It has rational species. But given that all of this is happening in a world with a lighter gravitational pull, a lesser gravitational pull than the Earth, what would that mean? How would that change things? Right. And that is a science fiction ish kind of speculation. Right. To base it on. And this is the first glimpse that we get of that here. What's wrong about the waves is that their shape is wrong. The water isn't reacting like it reacts on Earth. Um, it's It looks like turreted walls, right? The, the waves are too tall and pointy. They shouldn't be that tall and pointy. Water is not behaving on this planet like it behaves on Earth because the gravity is lesser, right? And we see this, of course, uh, in many of the things that he sees and is impressed by right away. Baffled by this, he turned his attention to the nearer shore, beyond the shallows. The purple mass looked for a moment like a plump of organ pipes, then like a stack of rolls of cloth set up on end, then like a forest of gigantic umbrellas blown inside out. It was in faint motion. Suddenly his eyes mastered the object. The purple stuff was vegetation, More precisely, it was vegetables. Vegetables about twice the height of English elms, but apparently soft and flimsy. The stalks, one could hardly call them trunks, rose smooth and round, and surprisingly thin, for about forty feet. Above that, the huge plants opened into a sheaf-like development, not of branches, but of leaves, leaves large as lifeboats, but nearly transparent, The whole thing corresponded roughly to his idea of a submarine forest. The plants, at once so large and so frail, seemed to need water to support them, and he wondered that they could hang in the air. Lower down, between the stems, he saw the vivid purple twilight, mottled with paler sunshine, which made up the internal scenery of the wood. What would plants be like growing in a world with lower gravity than ours, right? And here's here is his speculation, right? Here's his answer. Here's his sub-creative answer to the what-if, right? Um, plants don't grow this way on Earth because they would collapse under their own weight, right? But if they didn't collapse under their own weight, they might grow very differently, right? And this is a really... Um, um, this is really fun. Nancy, I you are absolutely not alone. Um, in if you if the if the description of the melanchandrian landscape makes you imagine Dr. Seuss drawings, you are very much not alone. Uh I find Dr. Seuss's images uh to sort of infect my imagination uh at many points, when I am listening to the description of the Malachandrian uh, countryside, here. Okay, almost out of time. Was well, at least part random, uh, ran- random ransom from uh, Weston and divine. At first, he could not see clearly what they were pointing at. There seemed to be some paler and slenderer plants that he had than he had noticed among the purple ones. He hardly attended to them, for his eyes were busy searching the ground. So obsessed was he with the reptile fears and insect fears of modern imagining. It was the reflection of the new white objects in the water that sent his eyes back to them. Long, streaky, white reflections, motionless in the running water. Four or five, no, to be precise, six of them. He looked up. Six white things were standing there. "'spindly and flimsy things, "'twice or three times the height of a man. "'His first idea was that they were images of men, "'the work of savage artists. "'He had seen things like them in books of archaeology. "'But what could they be made of, and how could they stand? "'So crazily thin and elongated in the leg, "'so top-heavily pouted in the chest, "'such stocky, flexible-looking distortions of earthly bipeds, "'like something seen in one of those comic mirrors.' They were certainly not made of stone or metal, for now they seemed to sway a little as he watched. Now, with a shock that chased the blood from his cheeks, he saw that they were alive, that they were moving, that they were coming at him. He had a momentary, scared glimpse of their faces, thin and unnaturally long, with long, drooping noses and drooping mouths of half-spectral, half-idiotic solemnity. Then he turned wildly to fly and found himself gripped by divine. Okay. Notice the fundamental bias of Ransom's point of view. Why are the Sorns so terrifying? Why are the Sorns so terrifying to him? Can you see the pattern in his description? we we'll after this. This is our last slide. But can you see the pattern in his description? Yes, Stephen. That, I think, is the, is, is the heart of it. Yes, Devorah. Exactly. Um, and Veronica, too. They look like people. But not enough like people, exactly as uh, Fred Rockpaper says on Twitch. They're not quite human, right? It's the proximity. But notice they're appalling to him because the human shape and the human face even are what he's looking for. Notice his descriptions of them. How could they stand, right? So crazily thin? Well, compared to what? And elongated in the leg? Who says what's the right length of a leg? so top-heavily pouted in the chest? Well, okay, so your chests are swollen out, right? Like, who's to say that that's too top-heavy, right? Um, such stocky, flexible-looking distortions of earthly bipeds. In other words, Ransom approaches the Sorns with an absolutely unquestioned and even unself-conscious unselfconscious anthropocent- anthropocentric perspective, right? Um, he takes humans as the default and is terrified of these creatures, not because they're different, but because of how similar they are. Um, they're in the uncanny valley, uh, David Attlee, you're absolutely right. Exact, Good, Kristen, Christie and Robert Brown and Takako and Bruce are all talking about this, yes. The uncanny valley effect is exactly what's happening here. But, But again, the 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 root of that, right the foundation of the uncanny valley effect here is that um, they is the assumption that our form is the norm, mm-hmm. right? if he were not constantly comparing um, if the whole description of again the face, right thin and unnaturally long, long drooping noses and drooping mouths of half spectral, half idiotic solemnity. Right? Um if he were not taking the human face as the pattern, right? The pattern the orthodox pattern of how they should look, and contrasting it with that, he wouldn't have this reaction, right? But he does do that. Um Ransom is a very terrestrial creature. He is a terrestrial modern. He is different from Weston and Divine. So what we begin to see is that Weston, Divine, and Ransom, the three of them, it's not Ransom here and Weston and Divine over here. I mean, of course, in some ways it is. But in some ways it's, it's better to think of the three of them separately, right? That Ransom, Weston, and Divine, all three of them represent, are sort of Uh, come from different parts of the modern perspective, right? Ransom is different from... He differs from both Weston and Divine, right? But he doesn't differ from them in being outside of their culture or not sharing their basic assumptions. He denies many of their beliefs, right? But if you think about it, these are like... There are different things that... So... Ransom and Divine alike disbelieve in, uh, uh, they, they alike disbelieve in um, uh, Weston's ideals, right? Neither of them agree with Western's ideals. Weston and Ransom both of them believe in higher ideals beyond the merely material, beyond the merely pragmatic, right? And in, their, in that way, both of them are on one side and divine is on the other side, right? Ransom believes that the means do not justify the ends and that doing what is right is more important than, you know, cannot be pushed aside for other Reasons and they're, and in that way, Weston and Divine are together and Ransom is apart. But again, all three of them, just as all three of them are traveling in the same ball through space, right? All of them also share the same fundamental modern earthbound perspective, right? Just as they're traveling through a little round ball that looks like a tiny little planet traveling through space, so they have brought their worldly assumptions with them. Uh, divine and Weston a seemingly almost unquestioningly, right? Um, Almost—with uh, uh, almost no self-awareness, right? Um, as if there were any other perspective to be had, Right. Um, But that, of course, is the most important gap that's going to open up between one of them on the one hand and two of them on the other hand, right? And that's between Ransom and Weston and Divine, um, is that Ransom is going to come to change. He's going to change. He is going to—his attention will be drawn to these assumptions and perspectives uh, and sort of mythological frameworks that he brings to the universe as a representative of modern Earth right? Um, and his encounter with the Sorns, his first encounter with the Sorns here is, uh, completely tainted by it. In fact, um, all right. Uh, we'll stop there. As I said, um, and, uh, we, we will, uh, Okay. Hey, uh, folks on Twitch. So it looks like my go-to webinar just crashed exactly after I said, we'll stop there this week. So I'm gonna, uh, stop there this week. (laughs) Thanks everybody. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org.